Now, if you've still got your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter. Uh, we'll be in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 4. So if you're able, uh, would you stand with me as we read from this portion of God's Word? 1 Peter 4, uh, chap- chapter, sorry, 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 7. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Lead us by your spirit that we would understand these things that have been written, that we would receive them in faith and in love, that we would lay them up in our hearts and practice them in our lives. And we ask that in all things we would see Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, We've entered into that time of the year when the weather seems to impact us more than perhaps at other times, although there's always weather and there's always an effect of weather. Uh, Just this past week, we, we saw a fairly large storm roll through with lots of wind and lots of rain. And for the, for the most part, it seems to me, I think uh, everybody knew that this was coming. Everybody knew that this was going to happen. We, we live in a privileged time where we have things like a weather forecast and radars and satellites that give us all kinds of information so that we, we can know in advance that there's a storm coming. We can know in advance that we need to go outside and, and secure things that are loose so that we can prevent things from damaging our homes or getting damaged outside or stay off the roadways. If you're driving a school bus and you know it's going to be windy, you can make plans, uh, even as our school district did this last week. When you're aware that there's a significant event on the way, there's wisdom in preparing for it. There's wisdom in looking ahead and thinking about how you should respond with the knowledge that some major event or some significant event is coming. In our passage this morning, uh, Peter is giving us kind of a similar situation. He's giving us needed information about the history of the world and the history of God's work of redemption. And he's calling us to live wisely, to live faithfully in the light of that announcement. Really, this is what he's been doing throughout the entirety of his letter. He's telling us who we are in Jesus Christ. He's explaining uh, the significance of the work of Christ for us. And then he's calling us to live consistently, to live faithfully in the light of what Jesus has done for us as a witness to the world around us. That The gospel is indeed true, that God has provided salvation for us in Jesus Christ, and our lives are meant to bear witness to that reality of God's work in Christ. In the last few passages that we've looked at, Peter's kind of done a handful of things. He's, he's looked back, uh, and he's looked outward. 
So he's, he's looked back. He's looked back at what Jesus has accomplished for us. He's told us how Jesus gave his life for us at the cross. He suffered in our place so that we might be brought to God, that we might be forgiven of our sins. He told us that Jesus has risen from the dead and has ascended back up into heaven at the right hand of God. And in doing so, he has proclaimed his victory and his authority over all angels, all all powers, all authorities on earth. Jesus is exalted above them as the victorious and reigning king. He has conquered sin and he has conquered all evil powers. And then as Jeff reminded us uh, last week, Peter encourages us to kind of look in, but look outward, uh, to, to think about how we interact with, how we live with the world outside of God's people. How do we live in this world as followers of Jesus, especially in those times when we are treated poorly, when we are treated unjustly, when we suffer for doing good, when, when we follow Christ and the response that we get to that from the world around us Uh, is unjust suffering. How do we respond to that? And he's encouraged us all along the way. As Jeff pointed out, Peter talks about suffering a lot. And at each point, he's encouraging us, do good, resist evil, love your enemies as a way to display Jesus at work in you to the world around you. In this passage, Peter's looked back, he's looked out, now he looks ahead, and he tells us to look into the community of God's people, not to look out at the world around the church, but to look within to the church. He reminds us that the end is at hand and then tells us or answers the question, how then should we live with one another as members of the body of Christ? How should we live in light of the fact that the end is at hand? Before we answer the, the practical question and see what Peter tells us about that, I think it's important for us to first understand what does Peter mean when he says that the end of all things is at hand. So this morning we want to look at two things. We want to look first, how is the end near? What does Peter mean by that? And then second, how does the end impact our lives now? So first notice verse 7. Peter tells us that the end of all things is at hand. How, how is the end of all things near? We might be tempted to read a passage like this and think to ourselves, you know, Peter wrote this uh, not, not quite 2,000 years ago, but pretty close. Um, how near could the end be if that much time has spanned, has gone by since Peter wrote these things? Peter seems to feel an urgency about the end of all things, and yet here we are, still waiting. Here we are. The end has not fully come. So how how do we understand what Peter means when he says that the end of all things is at hand? There's a few things just, just briefly. We don't need to spend all of our time here, but just briefly what Peter means. When Peter talks about the end, he's not primarily talking about the terminal point, although that's clearly in view. The word that he uses here for the end is the word telos, which is a way of describing the goal, the the culmination of God's work of redemption. Peter is telling us that the bringing together of all of God's work of redemption is soon. It's at hand. It has come near to us, 
And there's yet one more thing remaining for God to do before he wraps all of history up with the return of Christ. So you can think about it this way. Jesus talks about this in terms of the kingdom of God. In his, in his earthly ministry, this was a large part of Jesus' preaching. In fact, his first sermon, repent and believe the gospel, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come. How has that kingdom come? Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God in his first coming through his death, and especially in his resurrection. The kingdom has come, and yet the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness, in its final culmination, the kingdom has not yet come. There is yet more to come when Jesus returns. So, for example, Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits of a greater harvest of resurrection to come. And what he means by that is, in Jesus' dying and rising again, he has put sin to death. He has rendered powerless him who holds the power of death, Satan. He has conquered evil. In his rising again, he has brought the blessings of the life to come into this life now so that we experience the joys of the new heavens and the new earth now in part, though not in full. For example, do you have forgiveness of sins now? Yes. Are you free from sin now? No. Do you enjoy fellowship with God now? Yes. Is it freed from sin? No. There's, there's hindrances, hindrances to our fellowship because of our, our sin. Uh, do you experience um, being born again now? Yes. But you have not yet been raised again to fullness of life in the resurrection. So there's a sense in which all of the blessings of salvation and life with God, Jesus has brought the beginning of them, the first fruits of them now through his resurrection. And when he returns again in glory, he will bring them in their fullness so that we will be in the presence of God with no more sin, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more sadness. We will behold God face to face and all of the old things will pass away. Behold all things will be made new. When Peter talks about the end of all things being at hand, the essential thing that he's saying is this. There's one remaining thing in God's redemptive work that has to happen, and that is the return of Christ. There's no other events prior to that in terms of God's redemptive work except the return of Christ. That's the main thing. And so the end, the culmination, the, the final piece of God's redemptive work is at hand. It has come near. Uh, the scriptures describe this uh, for us, saying that we are living now in the last days. We're living now in the last period of time before Christ comes back. And Peter wants us to understand how it is that we should live in the light of the urgency of this, that the only thing that remains is for Christ to return in glory. So how is the end near? Jesus has brought the end in principle and part with his resurrection and the fullness of the end is yet to come when he returns in glory. How does that impact our lives now? I'd like to just point out uh, 
kind of big picture and then talk about three things that Peter directs us to do. I think it's worth pointing out that Peter's description of how we ought to live in light of the urgency, the nearness of the end, that his description of this life is pretty ordinary. Um, I don't know how, how you all responded to news of a storm with high winds and heavy rains recently. Some of you work in you know, jobs where you've got to get ready, you've got to be out in the middle of that fixing power lines and, and so forth, and there's some urgency to that, and you do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do, right? You go down, you tie down things outside. That's not ordinary. You're not normally doing that uh, when there's no storm coming. We might think that this news, the end of all things is at hand, would prompt kind of some radical, non-ordinary behaviors uh, that Peter would instruct us to do. But I just want you to notice how ordinary this instruction is. What does Peter call us to do? He calls us to pray. He calls us to demonstrate love to one another. And he calls us to do it all to the glory of God. That's, in some ways, that's very ordinary. He's not calling you to do anything extraordinary in the sense that we normally think about it. He's calling you to live the Christian life as you, as you faithfully wait for Christ to come. Uh, I don't know where this is. So I can't tell you where to look it up, but it's, uh, I understand that at some point Martin Luther was asked, you know, uh, Luther, if you knew that Christ was returning tomorrow, if tomorrow was the day of Christ's return, what would you do today? Uh, and his answer, which has been given in various ways, his answer was, I would plant a tree and I would pay my taxes. Well, there's different ways to take that, but the point of what he was saying is, I would faithfully live out my calling and do the ordinary things that God has called me to do today, which for him was plant a tree and pay your taxes. Well, what would you do if you knew Jesus was returning very soon, if you knew that the end of all things was at hand? Well, Peter tells us, pray, love one another faithfully, and do it all to the glory of God. So let's look at these three pieces of instruction that Peter gives us here. Uh, notice verse 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That's an interesting phrase that Peter uses here, that we're to be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of our prayers. But I think all that he's calling us to do is to live a life of sobriety. He's using kind of a metaphor of, uh, in contrast to drunkenness and calling us to the opposite of that in, in our lives. So he's, you know, in some ways he's calling us not to engage in drunkenness, but it's, it's usually used as a metaphor for our lives. Uh, you know what happens when, when a life is characterized by, by drunkenness, don't you? You don't make good decisions. You, you don't think about what you're doing. There's, there's a loss of inhibition, a loss of critical thinking, and, and inevitably... Uh, when you engage in drunkenness and the activities that come often come with that, the next day, what do you say? I regret that, or I don't remember that. And there's, there's a lack of control over your life. Peter's calling us to a life that is under self-control, a, a, a life of sobriety, a life in which we are deliberately thinking about how to live for the Lord in all of life, exercising godly self-control under the rule of Jesus Christ. And that, that sobriety of life is meant to be characterized 
by prayerfulness, by a recognition that we are people in deep need of the grace and strength and mercy of God. And that creates a sobriety of life. It creates a deliberate way of living, of seeking how to please God, how to live for God. And as we do that, it leads us to prayer, to prayerful dependence upon the Lord as we wait upon the return of Christ and seek to live faithfully for him. So it calls us to a prayerful sobriety of life, self-control, prayerful dependence upon Christ. Notice also he calls us to live an others-oriented life. Notice these two commands in verses 8 and 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. In verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Love one another earnestly. Peter calls us uh, here again, he's already said this at least one time in the letter, uh, to live our lives within the community of God's people in a way that is characterized by love for one another. He calls it earnest love here. Earlier, he calls us to love without hypocrisy, a sincere love. Uh, But notice he adds a reason for us to continue to love one another earnestly within the body of Christ. Notice the reason he gives in verse 8. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, let me say what this is not saying and talk about what this, what this is saying. Peter is not calling us here to um, cover up sin in a deceitful kind of way. That's not what he means by love covers a multitude of sins. He's not calling us to uh, ignore sin in a, when, when, when it needs to be dealt with and addressed. That's not, that's not what he's describing here. Um, so what, what is he talking about? Peter here is, is quoting from, or he's kind of paraphrasing uh, a verse from the Proverbs. And, and in the Proverbs, as you read through the Proverbs, and this often happens in the Psalms, the Proverbs will often contrast things for us. And in Proverbs 10, 12, it says, hatred stirs up tri- uh, strife, but love covers many sins or a multitude of sins. And so Peter's borrowing from the Proverbs here, and he's contrasting kind of implicitly love and what it does with hatred and what, he do- what hatred does. In other words, he's talking about the life of the body of Christ, the community of God's people, and he's calling us away from the things that threaten to divide us. And in particular, the way that we respond to one another's sin. I'd like for you just to kind of think and remember for a second the situation that these early Christians were facing, as far as we can tell. They were a minority uh, in their culture and in society. They, they did not have political power. They probably did not have economic or social power. They were a minority. They often experienced suffering and persecution on account of their loyalty to Jesus Christ. In a sense, they lived in a pressure cooker. And, and you know what that does to relationships, even among people who are friendly, who have commitments to one another. It means that temperatures can rise quickly, even over minor conflict. Yet, these believers, given this situation, they did not have what we might call the luxury 
of division. They couldn't get mad, leave the church, and join themselves to the church across the street. They didn't have that option. They felt, uh, you might say it this way, they felt the cost of division among Christians. They felt the cost of that division perhaps far more than we do. And, and we can learn something from that. They valued, uh, sometimes out of necessity, but certainly out of conviction, the unity of God's people. They, they felt it more keenly than we do because they were a minority suffering. And so in a sense, maybe they felt like they needed each other more than we, we often feel like we need one another. So Peter urges them, I think we can learn from this, he urges them to love one another in a way that preserves their unity, even with the presence of interpersonal sin. Let me ask you a question, and you don't, don't answer this out loud. Uh, why do churches divide most often? Why do followers of Jesus Christ most often end relationships with one another? It's typically not over doctrinal, you know, theological issues, though that certainly has happened in history. You have major shifts in church history where that has been the root issue. But most of the time, on a micro level, on kind of the local level, what is it that causes division? What is the usual suspect? Is it not conflict over interpersonal relationships due to, to sin and defenses and, and grievances that we receive and, and often give? It's, it's sin and, and our reaction to it. Uh, you might say it this way just to kind of get at what Peter's saying here. The, the beautiful thing about the community of God's people, the fellowship of his church, is not the absence of sin, but the presence of forgiving love. That, that is what makes the community of God's people so special. And, and often we forget that, and maybe you, you join yourself to a church and you think, this is going to be great. All these people are awesome. None of them do bad things. None of them will say anything to me that will hurt me or harm me or offend me. Uh, everybody will meet my needs and everybody will do it well. And then, and then you, you kind of get out of the honeymoon phase and you realize oh, these people are all sinners. They've all got problems. They've all got baggage and they've all brought it here to be part of this community. And they've all committed themselves to one another. And the beauty of that, that is not that those things suddenly become untrue. That all of a sudden your baggage and the things that you carry from past sins or from present sins, that all of a sudden it's just gone. That's not how it works. The beauty of it is that Jesus faithfully, mercifully, and graciously works in it and through it and over it because of his powerful and sovereign grace so that he can call us to something like love. And remind us that loving one another covers a multitude of sins, which basically means we don't, we don't have to respond to every, every offense. You don't have to react to every, every grievance. You can choose in love to, to ignore a wrong that's done against you. You don't have to deal with every, every sin that occurs. Can you imagine if we did? It wouldn't be love. Uh, hatred stirs up strife, and sometimes strife comes from nursing a wound. 
nursing a grievance, thinking about it, brooding about it, thinking about it at night and holding on to a grudge because somebody has done something against you. And Peter here is calling us to a patient and forbearing love for one another, a love that covers a multitude of sins. We should say, uh, while this requires us to choose to love the person who has sinned against us as if they had not, this does not teach us that we have to avoid all confrontation of sin. That's not the point. There are times when that's needed, but that's not today's message. Instead, Peter here encourages us to adopt, adopt a loving heart that patiently bears with one another. And in that way, preserves the unity of God's people as a witness to the grace of Jesus Christ. Love one another as an others-oriented life. Secondly, he calls us to hospitality, which is another expression of love. I won't, I won't spend any time uh, on that, but just simply to point out Peter is calling us to welcome those who we normally might not welcome. Uh, this is the, the wonderful thing about the body of Christ, that what unites us to one another is not all of our similar, it's not because we're all alike. We all like the same team, et cetera, et cetera. What unites us to one another is Jesus. And, and because of that, because of our union with Christ and with one another, we're able to welcome one another even when we normally wouldn't have occasion to do that. And, and Peter tells us to do this without grumbling. Now, why would he say something like that? Why would he say show hospitality without grumbling? Because you might grumble about it. <laughs> you might feel that someone has overstayed their welcome, or you might grumble about another uh, requirement to serve or to, to open your heart or to open your home. And Peter recognizes that those are struggles we will all face, and we will often grumble about serving one another in this way. And he's calling us away from that, to have an open-hearted <laughs> attitude and love toward one another, to be willing to serve one another without <laughs> grumbling, show hospitality toward one another. So he calls us to an others-oriented life, but notice also he calls us to a, a God-centered life, a God-centered life. And there's overlap here. They're all, they're all connected. As we serve one another, we do it in a way that honors God and brings glory to him. There are four statements that uh, Peter makes that highlight the God-centered nature of our lives. Uh, notice first in verse 10, that as each has received a gift, we're to use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. When Peter talks about grace here, he's describing spiritual gifts. He's describing the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the body of Christ to serve one another, to build up the body. And there's a God-ordained Variety, a God-ordained variation in the way that he distributes spiritual gifts among his people. Every Christian has been gifted by the Spirit of God and is called to be an instrument of God's grace in the life of the local church. But not everyone is called to serve in the exact same way. Not everybody has the exact same gift, and that's a, that's a good thing because it means we all are needy, and we all are needed by one another. I know this is going to be hard to believe, but there are a lot of things that I'm really not good at. Uh, I'm good at like two things, okay? The rest of it, not so much. And that's okay because God provides gifts across the body of Christ. 
Uh, it would be horrible if, if, you know, we were expecting just one person to do all things. That, and, and none of you do that. Um, but the, the point is, he gives gifts, varied gifts, a variety of, of gifts, a, a, a manifold display of his grace through the body of Christ so that we all are able to serve one another and meet one another's needs in relationship to Jesus Christ and to one another. You are needy and you are needed, and God provides the gifts in his body that we need. Notice as well when he speaks about, uh, when he talks about speaking and he talks about serving, he talks about those in terms of our relationship to God. And so he says, whoever is to speak is to speak as one who speaks oracles of God and whoever serves to serve by the strength that God supplies. It's possible that Peter is emphasizing speaking and serving uh, among the leaders of the church, those who serve in those roles in an official way. And certainly what he says here applies uh, to those who, who teach in particular, those who serve, uh, perhaps uh, uh, thinking of the diaconate in that regard. But I think his main point is broader than that. I don't think he's zeroing in on people who serve in kind of an official function within the church as an officer. I think he's talking to all of us. What's he talking about? He's talking about what we say and what we do. That's your whole life, your words and your actions. And he's calling all of us to think about our words and our actions in a God-centered, God-oriented, God-honoring way. So none of us is off the hook in this uh, command. We're all to speak and serve, to, to talk and to do in a way that honors God. Notice what he says. We're to speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Let your words be a reflection of God's words. Let your manner of speech be so full of God's spirit that it's as if you are speaking on God's behalf. After all, don't we all represent Jesus who is himself the very word of God? Don't our words, aren't they intended to reflect his words and his purposes? The way you speak to your spouse the way you speak to your children, the way you speak to your siblings, the way you speak to your friends, your coworkers, people in your neighborhood. We ought to be thinking about the way we speak as, uh, as if we are speaking the very words of God. And, and how would God speak? How, how does God's word influence and shape our words to one another? Uh, yesterday at, at the wedding, the uh, videographer, I don't even know how you say that word. The guy that was taking the video, uh, he gave me a little microphone, not, not for amplification outside, but he wanted to record my part in the wedding so that they could have audio as part of the, the video they were recording of the service. So about 10 minutes before the service started, he put this microphone on my, my jacket and he started recording. And all of a sudden, my first thought was, don't say anything careless. I'll put it that way. Uh, watch what you say. Now, why did I do that? Well, because I knew someone was going to be listening in to a recording of my words, and I'm accountable for that, and I didn't want to say anything foolish, which happens uh, because I talk a lot. Well, guess what? <laughs> That's just a little recording. Uh, I'm, I'm not really accountable to the guy who had the recording and who was working on the video of the wedding, but Jesus says that we are accountable for every word that comes out of our mouths, even the careless ones. 
That is a sobering thought. I mean, it was enough for me to just have some guy's microphone recording me before the service. Uh, but the, the Lord of the universe has said we'll be accountable for every word we utter, even careless words. Friends, if you're a Christian, your mouth does not belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. And therefore, your words should reflect his words. Are you speaking truthfully? Do you care if your words are true? Are you building up or are you tearing down? When you speak to someone about their sin, are you seeking to bring them to repentance and grace or are you just hammering them for it? When you give counsel, do you uh, give it from the wisdom of God's word? We do so much with our words. They carry immense power. Read the book of James and see how he describes our tongues. Peter here reminds us that we're to speak as those who speak God's word. And as a parallel to that, we're to serve with the strength that God supplies. All of life is to be oriented toward God. And so Peter brings it all together at the end with this ultimate goal, that whatever we're doing, speaking, serving, loving, showing hospitality, covering a multitude of sins, trying not to grumble as we serve one another. Peter directs us to this ultimate goal of life near the end, that it's to be to the glory of God. Notice the end of verse 11. We're to do this in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. We await the final work, final piece of the work of Jesus in his return in glory. And as we do, Peter calls us to a life characterized by self-control and prayer, a life of love to one another, bearing with one another patiently, covering a multitude of sins. He calls us to live for others for his glory, relying on him in all things, speaking as those who speak God's words, giving him glory in all things. And today we come to a table set for us that holds all of these truths in front of us. Here at Jesus' table, much like Peter has done, he, he calls us to look back and to look ahead. Jesus shows us with sensible signs, the bread and the cup, that he has conquered sin, that he has conquered death, that he has conquered Satan and his death and his resurrection for us. And he tells us that this, this meal, as simple as it is, is a foretaste of the greater feast yet to come when Christ will return in glory and bring at last the end of all things, the culmination of his great redemptive work. Jesus has set this table for us, his people. He is the one whose love led him to the cross, which does not simply cover a multitude, many sins, but covers all sins for those who have trusted in him. Jesus sets this table for us. He is the gracious host who receives us with an open-hearted welcome. He shows us the hospitality of his love demonstrated in the cross and the resurrection. He does it without grumbling. We came as strangers. He has made us friends. We were once enemies, but now we are beloved 
children and citizens in his kingdom. This is the table of Christ's gracious hospitality for us. Here at his table, he, he speaks God's words to us. His body given for us, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, calling us to take and to eat, to take and to drink. And here Christ himself serves us. He serves us spiritually by the power of his Holy Spirit, by nourishing us through faith with his body and blood and all of the benefits of his work of redemption in the new covenant. He serves us. So may we come. May we come as those who are needy. May we come with open hands and open hearts. And may we go, after receiving these gifts, may we go with sober-minded prayer, Christ-like love, giving all glory to God until he comes again. Let's pray.